This is an MPT Magazine podcast. For more information, find us online at www.mptmagazine.com. This most recent issue, I'm really proud of. I'm proud of all of them. They're all my babies. But this one is wonderful because it's dedicated to, or the focus section in it is dedicated to world's poetry for children. And children's poetry is an area that usually serious poetry magazines don't touch, uh, which is such a grave mistake. Children's poetry is some of the best poetry being written anywhere, and world children's poetry, children's poetry from other cultures, is just some of the greatest poetry on the planet. And we really wanted to have a showcase of some great children's world poetry. Some of the poets in the focus section um, well, they come from all over the world. We've got an Eritrean poet, Risa Mahaili. We've got a uh, Mexican poet. We have poets from Holland, from Poland. And we have Marina Braditska <laughs> from Russia. And we have a poet from Taiwan. We have a wonderful poem, oh, wow. children's poem from Taiwan. Um, very beautiful poem. Samoa. And Samoa. We have some Samoan children's poems. So it's kind of really fairly widespread. I feel very privileged to be surrounded by such, such brilliant children's poets. Um, and we thought that we would, we would just talk a little bit about the issue of children's poetry and how it's used and abused by various bodies, institutions, governments, and what it can really do for children and what children can do for it as well. And so t tonight I have with me um, Marina Braditskaya, who is a fantastic Russian poet, a poet for children, but not just for children, a translator from the English language of some of the um, greatest children's work in English, from A.A. Milne to most recently The Gruffalo, and, um, and also a fantastic presenter, radio presenter of, of, of poetry. She actually runs the programme which is closest to our Poetry Please. So believe it or not, Marina Boroditska is the Roger McGough of Russian poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and on my other side, I have Michael Rosen. I hate to use the words, needs no introduction, but I just feel that you might be the man for whom those words apply. But I do also want to say that Mike, Michael is someone who combines um, fantastic, fantastic poetry for children. And I mean, what family in Britain doesn't use the expression, can't go under it, can't go over it, got to go through it? It comes up a million times a week in our household for all sorts <laughs> of unlikely things. But also, sort of this amazing amount of, of humanism and also engagement in society and in politics and somehow bringing all that together into one life's work is, is, is really fantastic. Just recently I was in the car driving my kids somewhere and I was listening to Michael talking on the radio about children's literature and I just thought this is somebody who's really essential to our, to our children's education but also to their sort of upbringing in the widest sense of the word, to their humanism really and how to make children and adults into better people. So I'm very proud that Michael is here tonight. I should also say that I'm very proud that Michael agreed this year to be one of the patrons of MPT. So it's a sort of double pleasure. Thank we, you very much. Thank you. I, I thought, actually, I'd, I'd start briefly with Michael because we, we, for this issue, we, we commissioned a, a conversation between Michael and Marina about the ways that poetry, children's poetry, is used um, in, in, in the UK and in Russia 
and Michael wrote brilliantly about the um, the way that children is used, that children's poetry is used in the curriculum or misused in the curriculum. And I wondered if you wanted to say a few words about that. Mm. It kind of depends which part of the curriculum. Uh, we can start with the very youngest and sort of move up, really. Um, just recently, for example, um, they went up online on the government website, so you can check whether I'm lying or not. Um, it, it's the draft proposals for the what they call the key stage one SATs. So if that's just jargon to you, that means the test that they're going to give children at the end of year two. So we're talking there about six to seven-year-olds, five, six, six to seven, that's right, six to seven-year-olds at the sort of May time, the end of year two. And one of the examples they gave was a kind of perfect analysis in their terms of a Robert Louis Stevenson poem, um, Where the Boats Go. And if you don't know it, it's a, it's a lovely poem. It's about, uh, it's in the voice of probably a boy, Robert Louis Stevenson sort of transmogrified the voice uh, of himself as a child into Charles Gardner verses. So the persona behind the poem is a sort of him. And they're playing in the water and they're, as it were, in their mind, the, the boys or the children are speculating as to where the boats are going. And then there's a set of questions that children are expected to answer and the correct answers for them. And uh, if you know anything at all about SATs, the standard assessment uh, tasks, tests, um, that the government give, there, there's a set of correct answers because by and large they operate on what they call retrieval and inference. These are the two gods of primary education, right? Retrieval and inference. So retrieval is Billy has a blue hat. What color was his hat? Blue, one mark. And that covers about 50% of work as the government thinks fit. And so there's a set of retrieval questions in relation to this beautiful little poem, Where the Boats Go. And then there are inference questions. So inference is, it was raining. Uh, why was Billy wearing his hat? And you're supposed to say he was wearing a hat because it was raining. If, however, you say... Um, and you remember the first bit of the question, and you say he's wearing the hat because he supports Chelsea, then you're wrong. <laughs> so this is one of the major problems, but the government don't see that as any problem at all because they've narrowed down retrieval and inference to these two very specific tasks. So there's this set of questions. Do have a look at them. If you want to kind of despair, then let me recommend that you go to the government website, gov.uk or whatever it's called, and have a look. What's it called? Not gov.uk. It's very good, yes. <laughs> that sort of thing. That's right. Um, so go there and have a look at it, because any of us who enjoy poetry and like poetry, we know that to occupy a poem may well involve certain kinds of retrieving and certain kinds of inferring, but much, much more. It's engaging with the ideas and feelings in a poem, and there's plenty of ideas and feelings in the poem, but sadly, it's all narrowed down. Now you think, well, so what? It's just a little test at the end of year two. No, 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 no. What happens with all of these tests that the government have brought in and so on is there's a huge tailback that, you know, I don't blame teachers at all, but, you know, they either... They are encouraged to teach to the test, and of course they teach to the test because there's school management over the top of them, and then there are inspectors and advisors, and beyond that, Ofsted, and all sorts of people. There's a whole hierarchy above education that's saying you must teach to the test. And so, you know, I just think that the, the thing we call poetry, and when I go into schools and I'm performing and I see the enjoyment and the engagement, 
that is in great danger because this key stage one test has not come in yet. It's coming in at the end of next year. Poetry is going to go through the mill of retrieval and inference. So that's at key stage one. Key stage two, remarkably at the moment, it seems quite, they leave poetry out by and large. It's not in the SATS test, I noticed. So maybe they're going to carry on leaving it out. There are a set of modules, recommended modules of work, which I, I don't really have much argument with, other than that they, they rather strangely call them poetry units. If ever I could think of two words that are not made to, made to measure, to match to each other, I'd say it's poetry units. When it comes to secondary schools, something new has come in. Previously, in the, in the last era, the students were, had, a, had an anthology, which was changed each year, and it depended which exam board. This is talking about GCSE level. And it changed, and you were allowed to take the anthology in. You were allowed to take it in and use it as a point of reference. Now, as of, as it happens, our daughter, who's 14, so she's going to be the first of the victims, I think, who go through, so she's in year uh, nine, that they are not going to be allowed to take the booklets in. They will have 15 poems or something like that. They will have an unseen poem and will be asked to compare that poem with the ones that they've prepared. So kind of de facto, they've thrown at the students the idea that exactly what happened to me doing O-levels back in 1962, that what you will have to do is mug up so what you have to do is learn chunks and then work out a kind of little matrix about how you can use that chunk if you're going to answer on that theme and that chunk on that one. So it, it kind of forces students to sort of chop poems up into kind of, well, the word that we used to use was gobbits. So little exam-shaped gobbits that will fit the variety of questions that you will spend a lot of time guessing that you might get. So again, the idea of that prime reaction, prime response to poems, which we might use the word interpretation, reflection, uh, musing, reverie, any of those types of things about engagement with the poem, is going, it's going to be that much more difficult, particularly where teachers are worried that the students are, quote, weak, unquote. So they will say, well, just mug up that line or mug up that line and learn it for your homework, and they will even give worksheets and put the rest of it. And... I fear for it because, at the end of the day, it's not very enjoyable. It's not a very nice way to deal with poems. And if I'll just finish on this. If ever you th think, as a poet, what are you doing? I mean, I don't know how other poets think about it, but I often think that poems are beginnings of conversations, that when you write a poem, you hand it over to other people, and they will have conversations, either in their head or with one person or with other people. It doesn't matter, but it's a kind of starting point a poem is. It's not a finishing point where you can tie it all up neatly with a set of little gobbets. It's supposed to be a kind of provocation, and I say a, a kind of thing that can start a conversation. And I don't think anybody in charge of school poetry thinks that way. Whether they did in the past, I, I won't necessarily get into, but they certainly don't think that way now. They think of it either as a carrier of British culture, that's why they're doing the romantics, and the romantics are, uh, are compulsory, or it's this idea of just treating it as a good thing to learn because of itself it will make you a better person or something like that, missing out that it's the process of discussion. It's, I want for a better word, the dialectics around it. It's provocation of a discussion that makes you 
call it a better person or a thoughtful person or a reflective person, not the process of just simply learning up stuff for an exam. That's not what, how poetry was ever intended to work. Thank you. Well, when we, we set the title for this event, we've, we called it um, Out of the Crocodile's Mouth, I think, because there's a very famous children's poem in Russian literature called Crocodile by Kornei Tchaikovsky, written in the 1920s and banned in 1929 for decades. And it was banned because it wasn't seen as kind of instrumental enough. It wasn't, it wasn't enough. It, wasn't, um, it didn't teach children to have social feelings or a love of the collective. And it wasn't very informative about nature and wildlife in its depictions of the crocodile who walks around speaking Turkish and smoking. You know? <laughs> and um, I, I just wondered um, if you'd like to pick up that, Marina, what, yes. what, what Michael's saying, and Tchaikovsky, and talk about a little bit about Russia and what's happening now. Is it still possible to have a conversation with poetry? I thought you were going to recite a piece of the crocodile. Yes, I translated it. Translated yes, it. Sasha translated uh, at least the first half of the crocodile, and I'm pleading with her to go on with it because it's really brilliant. Can you? I'll read the first, I can read the first yeah. one. Yes, Just a bit, bit. Yes, read the a bit stanza, of it. Yes, I'll read the first stanza. We're is... here for fun after all. Yes, this is fun. There was once a crocodile who would wander through the streets and smile, smoking all the while and speaking fluent Turkish. <laughs> oh, crocodile, Mr. C. Rockadal, Esquire. <laughs> Can we hear a little bit of it in Russian? Do you remember a bit of it in Russian? Of course. Yes, of course. Жил да был крокодил. Он по улицам ходил, папиросы курил, по турецки говорил: крокодил, крокодил, крокодилович. It's a wonderful poem. Yeah, uh, but in that sometime. Uh, in the late 20s, I think, yes. Tchaikovsky, with this poem and other poems, was forbidden because the so-called group of the Kremlin parents wrote a letter to the government. Uh, well, you know all about it anyway. Uh, wrote a letter to the government about um, Mr. Tchaikovsky uh, teaching the children all the wrong values, uh, etc. Nothing about the Soviet um, mode of life and too much about some absurd uh, things, absurd and funny in a wrong way, etc. So anyway, Tchaikovsky was forbidden for years and really it was a disaster because a whole, a whole um, generation of children grew up without his wonderful stories and poetic fairy tales. Now, of course, he's the main classic of Russian children's poetry, and not only children's poetry, but I'm afraid he's going to get forbidden quite soon, not on the ground of him being, um, uh, you know, introducing religious words like, oh God, or something like that, but on the opposite ground of him being anti-religious because the uh, Kremlin parents have very successful successors who call themselves um, the Society of, um, of Parents of Siberia or the Society of Russian Orthodox Parents of the Euros. Yeah. 
and they keep writing letters to the Duma, uh, which is the name for our parliament, and the nickname is Printagon Mad. <laughs> yeah, so they keep writing letters to our Duma and the president and whoever they can reach, uh, urging to forbid all the children's books that uh, are not about, not, well, not um, propagating the right Russian Orthodox values and the patriotic feelings. So, Grandfather Cornier, which is the people's nickname for Tchaikovsky, because he is everybody's grandfather, still is, yeah. So, Grandfather Cornier can get forbidden on other grounds, the opposite grounds nowadays, I'm afraid. What sort of limits are the Duma imposing on particularly children's poetry and children's literature? Well, Duma is successfully trying to kill uh, children's literature. Well, not really successfully because we are still, still surviving and still opposing. But uh, Duma has produced the so-called law number, federal law number 436, uh, which uh, forbids all children's books um, propagating or encouraging, I'm quoting now, propagating or encouraging behavior uh, which can be harmful for children's health and morals, morals? Mm -hmm. health and morals, propagating uh, or encouraging behaviors that, uh, um, what, that neglect the uh, true and traditional family values and that uh, introduce uh, or propagate um, perverted relationships, etc., etc. It's not funny, really, uh, because it would be funny because no children's books, no real children's books propagate or encourage any things of this kind. But they sometimes mention things. They sometimes mention that there are, that some people can be gay, for instance, that uh, teenagers have genitals, you know, and teenagers can sometimes have complicated and complex and contradictory relationships with their parents. So the law was written in such a way that any book at any time, it's, it's, you know, it's really fuzzy. Uh, it's written in a fuzzy way. And any book at any time can get forbidden. And of course the uh, publishing houses are in just, it's a catastrophe for the smaller publishing houses because having to, with easier tirage, Draw, uh, to withdraw, withdraw, yeah. Having to withdraw a whole, the whole print of a certain book would just uh, would, uh, make them go broke. So they are trying to take measures. They are trying to label books, like books who are perfect for 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds get labeled 14 plus. Books perfect for 14-year-olds are labeled 16 plus or 18 plus, just in case, you know. And such things are happening all the time. 
So it's, it's, um, there was a law that the Duma passed earlier which said that you have to put on a sort of age certification yeah, on age all certification, public media. Yes. And, public and any Duma deputy who wants, who wants some PR can step up, raise their hand and say, oh look, I've been looking through a mm, children's section in that bookstore the other day and I saw that book about that foreign chap, Michael Rosen or whatever's his name, and it was called bear hunting and it propagates and encourages dangerous behavior, <laughs> hunting wild animals. So, let's forbid it. And there's no mother in the pictures, so it's not a perfect family. Deeply responsible father. <laughs> oh, wow. They May not even be the father, it might be an older brother. They never read the book. If they read it, yeah. they would forbid it long ago. I would. <laughs> they would have forbidden it long ago. Yeah. They just read the title, probably. Oh, bear hunt. Uh -huh. Hunting wild animals. Mind you, it could be symbolically hunting Russia, the bear. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe they had that in mind. Yeah, it'll yeah. come. Yeah. I'm thinking back to the cockroach. Um, Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky. The cockroach, the cockroach yes. has a moustache, and there were severe worries as to whether the cockroach was a kind of hidden reference to Stalin, though I think he wrote it before Stalin came to power, which is rather funny. No. But after, oh, did he? I think he actually penned it before Stalin came to power. Then it came out. <laughs> After, I think this is the story, if I've got it right. Stalin came to power and they said, is this a secret thing? So I think they banned it, but everybody could remember it because Tchaikovsky's poetry is very easy to remember in, in Russia. So, so everybody knew it and they could, as Marina can tell us, but um, the, crocodile, the, the cockroach with the moustache, I think, became known as, a, as, as Stalin, I understand. Anyway. Yes, right. And I think it was himself and his nearest and dearest who started the rumor that he actually meant Hitler. Ah, yes. The trouble is in the pictures quite often, all those beautiful pictures. He's got rather a curly moustache, which <laughs> Hitler must have. Anyway, it's yes, the one illustrators. Go it's the illustrators. Yes, indeed. <laughs> they have associations, you know, yes. the illustrators. They're yeah. not very verbal, but they have their associations. It's interesting because the two countries seem, on the face of it, you know, very different. And yeah. it's quite easy always, I think, here to point the finger at Russia and say, look at this incredibly draconian... Um, law system and look at the way that they're cracking down on children's poetry and children's literature and we don't have any of that here, thank goodness. But actually the truth is slightly more kind of slippery. Yes, it's, it's fuzzy here. I mean the point is, you know, we have a life outside obviously outside of schools and you don't want to simply say, you know, children's literature only exists in schools. It's just that it, it's a very powerful motor, you know, that if you go into a newsagent these days, you know, you'll see these spinners as they're called uh, stuffed full of booklets to enable parents to help their children pass the SATs tests. Um, and it's sometimes quite hard to go into a newsagent and find a spinner that's full of children's books. And you think, well, you know, this is so sad in a way because the parents are obviously trying to do their best by their children. And you just think, you know, if you bought children's books, you would actually help your child much more than if you sat there doing the cat sat on the blank you know, hour after hour, the nouns and the verbs and all the rest of it. And with your young children, at any rate, you would do much more just to sit around and enjoying books and talking about them. Um, but that's a way in which the sort of, if you like, that long hand of government reaches into schools and then outwards into the way in the tastes of people. 
Um, and, you know, those of us who write children's books, we, if we stand around in bookshops or we meet people, quite often you can hear these anxieties about the age thing. Is this suitable for a seven-year-old? Is this suitable for an eight-year-old? And you go, I, I don't know, really. It's sort of... Well, anybody could read it, really. I don't, you know what I mean? It's sort of, some of us think anyway, and it, you could say, well, maybe that's a subject that maybe is not that suitable, but I mean, children by and large will stop reading if they don't like it. You know, if you try at sort of the age five to read Great Expectations, it's a bit of heavy going, isn't it? Um, so you kind of, you know, don't you? So anyway, um, the draconian bit in schools is this grip that the exam system has. So on the one hand, the government says, we're stepping back, people can set up free schools, you know, academies, you don't have to do the national curriculum. But then, in a sense, there's this other framework, the testing system, and the, the other knock-on effect, which is kind of obvious, really, but not only does it have this tailback through how lessons are taught, but also in the fact that some teachers are asked to rehearse the testing. So vast amounts of time are taken up doing bogus test, practice tests, so that you get better at the tests, supposedly. Um, I mean, obviously, a bit of it's all right, but the idea that you kind of spend months and months doing rehearsing of tests, so that has that grip as well. Um, so, as you say, it's fuzzy, because the, the government can always say, what are you talking about? We've, we're encouraging reading for pleasure. Look at our website, and they've got this wonderful document on reading for pleasure. It is, it is. It's a very good document. I'd recommend it, again, on gov.uk, um, there's a very good document on reading for pleasure. It is. It's, 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 it's as good a document as you would want. It's just that many schools have turned around and go, we haven't got time to do that. We're too busy doing SATs preparation or GCSE preparation. So that's the sort of tension. It's, um, there's a word for it. It's not actually kind of repressive tolerance, but it's a, it, we need one of those nice ambiguous phrases to describe what it is going on. It's a kind of freedom without freedom. I'm getting there. Yeah. Freedom without freedom, yes. And in fact, and in fact the, the result is much the same. There's a sort of censorship by kind of just because there's a commercial market for children's books and the books that promote, for example, phonics learning or the books that promote sort of learning through in the right way are going to get published because t there's uptake yes. from schools. That's it, though. I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to say too. You know, exaggerate it. The point is, there are people within the children's book world who are doing incredible experimentations and wonderful things. So the children's book world for the, this moment now, if you could take the snapshot, in Britain is alive and as vibrant as it ever has been ever. You know, there's about eight or 9,000 titles, somewhere like that, published every year. They're not new. I mean, that's the number of titles. Includes, you know, all the classics you could ever want. Lots of brand new ones, some that are very conventional, some that are very experimental, revolutionary even. Uh, people trying huge diversity, and there are schools and plenty of teachers trying to use those as much as they can to find the gaps, the spaces in the curriculum where they can and they do. Um, and I'm the last person who can, can complain about my own poetry being used in schools because um, a lot of people use it, put it that way, and, and read it and do it in open-ended ways, performance, um, writing poems, inspired by and all the rest of it. So I wouldn't want to say it's like a 100% blanket because, um, you know, it's to the credit of this country. You know, no matter what draconian things people try to do, there's always some way that people find a way to resist. So I'm a great believer in kind of grassroots resistance. Grassroots re resistance is what Russia is also particularly good at. Grassroots resistance is what Russia is brilliant at, really. 
And of course, we have families <coughs> as opposed to schools. But the trouble is that the educated, thinking families, they will read good books to their children no matter what. They will choose the good books, they will go to the library, they will speak to librarians, they will go to the internet uh, parents' forums. Have you read this new book to your kid? So what was the reaction, etc., etc. <clears throat> but there are so many good children left out of it because their parents just don't have the time or the education or are not very good readers themselves, you know. It's always the trouble. And so these kids are left to school and kindergarten. And school isn't so bad. I mean, primary school in Russia isn't so bad so far because at least kids get to learn poetry by heart, which I think is a good thing. Because, well, we know, it's good for you to learn poetry by heart. Uh, good poetry, of course. But there is another side to this uh, medal, of course, or coin, medal, right? There's another side to it, anyway. Uh, in kindergarten and nursery school, they sometimes get to learn most awful quality poetry by heart. Sometimes it's composed by kindergarten teachers because they want to... Um, they want to keep up with a certain event, for instance. Oh, Mother's Day. And they are too lazy or too busy to find some nice poems about Mother's Day. And they distribute little strips to parents who come to pick up their kids. Uh, after the day's over, they distribute, distribute strips with homemade poems, like, I like my mommy, she's the best. And kids get to learn it by heart. But still, still, at least at primary school, they get to learn some good poetry by heart, some classical poetry. Of course, they get bored by classical poetry forever, because most of it uh, has to do with nature and seasons. Because, of course, you can't talk, you can't give uh, primary school kids uh, poems to learn by heart that deal with love or people's relationships or something funny. So, of course, in the end, they might get an idea that Pushkin and Turgenev and Bunin and all these guys were a bunch of very boring guys, obsessed by nature and seasons. <laughs> no. I mean, there are beautiful poems like Maros Sonce, Dien Chudesny, this is Pushkin, this is really a beautiful description of Russian winter, a brilliant one. Incomparable. Incomparable one, yeah. But it's still nature. And Unilaya Para, Acheya Chiravanya is the most famous autumn poem, you know. Slavna Osin, Zdarova Yedrioni, Vozduhu Stalai Sili Badrit, Nikrasov, about autumn. But still, at least it's a good example. It's a good it's example. It's a lovely Lamontov poem about the sail, the lonely sail. Yes. The lonely sail, yes. I love that. It's a lovely poem, yes. yeah. Every school kid is sick and tired of it, <laughs> yeah. And they hate it. Yes. But it's still, yeah, in the end, but it's still a lovely poem. And they really understand it. They really understand that this is a very good example of poetry, at least. But in the senior school, the danger is there. It's the same system. They rehearse the tests all the time. 
because nowadays they don't, uh, when they finish school, they have, so it's not A-levels, but it's called YEGE, Yedinei Gosudarstvenei Examen, the United uh, Government Exam. <laughs> yeah, or you, what? Uniform government exam. I think it should be uniform government exam. So, and they rehearsed for the last two years of senior school, they rehearsed tests. Instead of writing what we did and our kids did, we wrote compositions. At least it was a chance to express some of your own thoughts. It was a composition, it was an essay, and you could write what you think about this and that. Of course, you had to think whether you think right or not, not quite, but actually, if you had a good teacher, you were encouraged to express your own thoughts in a composition. But nowadays they have this uniform government exam and they have questions like, okay, find the right answer. Um, Natasha Rostova, you all know who it is. Natasha Rostova married, uh, variant one. Anatoly Kurakin, variant two. War and Peace, multiple choice. Andrei Bolkonsky, yeah. Variant three, Pierre Bizukhov. Circle the right variant. Well, not, not as stupid as that, maybe, but something very close to this. They have to give the, to choose the right answer. And if their own answer is not among the right answers, like I'm wearing this hat because I support Chelsea, then they're wrong and they don't get the necessary number of points. And well, in the SATS test a couple of weeks ago, if anyone knows this, the, uh, um, what you call it, uh, Key Stage 2 uh, came up on my Twitter feed today. The question was a little quote from Robert Louis Stevenson, Treasure Island, okay? And it had the little quote where the, the, the spyglass hill you know, which is used as a bearing for the treasure. There's a description, but it's a Victorian description. It says that the sides of the hill are sheer, okay, which is quite an obscure word these days. We know, you know, we know what it means, but are sheer with the top taken off. And then there were four little drawings. One's a triangle, like, uh, sorry, uh, like that. One is something wiggly. One is sheer with the top taken off, and the other one was more like a sort of triangle, and then the, it was multiple choice, and the child had to tick the right one. The only thing is, is that, I, pr I promise you, this is, it, 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 wait, look at my Twitter feed, you'll see, it's there, somebody sent it to me and said, what do you think of this? And I said, you know, how hard that is, quite apart from how absurd it all is, but actually for an enormous number of children, that word sheer, probably the only time they'll hear it is, as in the phrase, you know, sheer, crazy or sheer whatever, but they wouldn't hear it as the idea of it being steep and smooth. They wouldn't normally hear that sense of it, right? And so I then said to the person who had sent it to me, oh, well, I guess it's that one, third from the left or whatever I said, you see. And then they replied and pointed out that actually in the text that Stevenson has written, and it is very poetic, was that it was almost sheer. Okay, in other words, Stevenson was trying to say that most of the sides of the mountain were, but there were some rugged bits. So in actual fact, it wasn't as clear as the multiple choice stupidity showed anyway. And you could, in theory, say, well, the bit that I thought was the bit that wasn't sheer, almost allows the possibility. It is crazy, utterly insane, 
uh, or as my father would have said, Meshuggah, that means crazy, you know, just utterly absurd, and they've even got it wrong anyway, which the more you look at these things, I mean, have a look at my thing that I wrote in The Guardian on Tuesday. The questions they ask and the justifications are quite often wrong. I mean, for example, they've said on the question that they asked the Key Stage 1 children, uh, you can only use as an example of a question those statements that have uh, an interrogative word at the beginning, like why and how, or an inversion, and they gave an example, or a tag, as in isn't it. And the inversion they gave the example of is do you like? Have a little think about it. The only bit that's inverted is the do you, right? The auxiliary, as they call it. The like, which is the main verb, is not inverted. So they are even ignorant as they're asking the questions and demanding of the children to get it right. I mean, it is breathtaking. So not only is it wrong philosophically, that's to say, why demand that you should only ask a question that way? You could ask a question by saying, this is good. That's a question. But you can't, that's not allowed. But then when they gave the example, they actually got it wrong. I mean, you despair. What are you surprised at? No. That's a good point. The top people in education are always ignorant. Because when the, you know, when the good people in education were studying and educating themselves, the top people were climbing to the top. The sheer size of the... Exactly. Making a career. There's, there's something else about this that's also quite disturbing. I'm trying to put my finger on it. I think it's something about... I don't know about, about all of you, but I suspect you know, a lot of people in this room, when you learn to read, you learn to read in a very kind of vague way with books that you didn't quite understand and words that you maybe didn't quite understand. And I mean, there were words that I didn't understand until I was, I was until a couple of weeks ago, actually, and I've always <laughs> used them <laughs> and not actually know what they meant. And there were words I didn't know as a kid, but I'd sort of read them anyway. And I read a recent government thing about phonics that actually recommended in Key Stage 1, children do not look at books that they cannot read using phonics alone. So they don't read in the way that I read at all. They have to piece out, they have to work out the words scientifically. They can't just read, look at the illustrations, guess a word because it comes up. They can't just guess or just love a book because it's like, it's mysterious. And although they don't read it, they read their own thing in their head. And that's, that's sort of super important to reading, particularly poetry, which is, a lot of it is, is, is not... There's no, there's no, I don't know all the linguistic theory terms, but there's no sort of link between the words on the page and you, which is totally scientific. It's much more about something which is, which is vaguer and more philosophical. And I, I'm worried that this instrumentalising of literature and poetry in particular is, is very detrimental to that, that whole cultural process. And That's true. The children, they need, they, they really need something mysterious and vague in their books. They don't want to understand every word. Sometimes you know how little kids are. Sometimes you start explaining to them. You see, this word means, and they say, no. No, they don't want to know. They want to go on. And they want this word to stay a mystery, yeah. for a while at least, for a while. Yeah. And indeed, you know, as... French theorists have put up the suggestion that, of course, all words are ultimately mysterious, that there's not a perfect match between word and meaning. This is a kind of fib that started appearing in the 18th century, and that, in actual fact, words 
if you like, the signifier and the meaning, it's slippery. It doesn't, it doesn't tally. There's a moment. So, you know, here we are. We're sitting there. We're sitting in front of a table. So that's fine. I've said the word table, and there's the table. It's one thing refers to the other. But, of course, we can all think of 20 other kinds of tables that that signifies. So, so there's the one word, and it's all slipping out in these other ways. So it can signify lots of different things. And also that one thing overlaps with another, and we all carry around with us you know, ideas of tables that are different because we have our own ch tables that we had as children or a table that we were going to buy and then we lost or a second-hand table. And then there's things that we're not quite sure whether they are tables or not. So even every category that you might think of, it's always wobbly at the edges. You know, there are times when we use chairs for tables, when we go camping and was it a table or was it a chair? So, I mean, I, I take that as a kind of very obvious example, but the point is that is some of the territory the poetry explores. And it deliberately explores it because it's very interested in these things that we might call connotations, ambiguities, ambivalences. And that's one of the things that it does. It suggests. And in fact, you know, if you have nice open-ended teaching with poetry, it's one of the lovely things to explore. Somebody once wrote a book called Seven Types of Ambiguity. Somebody else said, seven? Is that all? Um, <laughs> but... Um, you know, it's a nice book in a way uh, because he kept saying there's. It was, it was particularly in looking at say some Jared Manley Hopkins. It's it's Empson, William Empson, um, and he's saying, look, this goes on resonating with lots and lots of meanings. It's the Windhover in particular that he's looking at, and then Marvell's Garden, and it's uh, quite an eye opener. It came out way way long time ago in the fifties, but you know, it's complete completely at the other end of the spectrum of a lot of this kind of thing that you're talking about. And when it comes to the phonics. They've got a little cliché, some of you may know it, it's called first, fast and only. And that little cliché is meant to mean that for reception and year one children, so these are fours to sixes, that some people say, not all, that those children should only be exposed to phonically regular texts and step by step, and that they must get the alphabetic principle, as it's called, and the meaning stuff can come later. And so there is a division, if you like, if those of us interested in initial reading. For those of us who think that we learn how to read through many systems and learning to read means ultimately reading for meaning, otherwise there's no point, you end up, like I can, looking at Italian and being able to pronounce it and not knowing what it means, which has very little value, apart from one phrase, con fungi. Which is very, very useful, I've found, in Italy. You, anywhere you go in Italy, you can walk up to people and say, Con fungi, and you know, they'll take you to the nearest mushroom shop straight away. Um, but that, that there's, a, there's a real problem in conceptualizing what a, what a child does in the face of the written text. Um, sometimes what happens in schools, and I'll sort of take this, is that there's the phonics bit, and then there's this other hour where you do the literature bit. And in a way, I, I can take that. The bit that I can't take is the bit that says, well, we'll do all the phonic stuff first, and then we'll start talking about literature and nonfiction and all the rest of it a year later down the line, because you may well have lost them. Or, as my own students tell me at Goldsmiths, that when, they, when the children hit year two, they have a problem that you've got children sort of barking at print without any real sense as to what it's about or what it's for. So then they have to do emergency now let's fight, let's get, let's enjoy books bit. 
and they say it's kind of, and they feel under pressure from their head teachers and inspectors and so on to stick to that formula, but then they sort of, they're doing kind of band-aid on comprehension or understanding or cognition, whatever you want to call it, with those older children. I mean, that's, it's, that's the sort of, some of the tension lines going on, and there are all these wonderful nursery rhymes that were, many of them invented and circulated for the very purpose of enjoying the sound at the same time as learning to read. Pat a cake, pat a cake, baker's man, bake me a cake as fast as you can. I mean, it's virtually phonic. It's a lovely little poem, but you won't find it in any of the phonics books. I collect early reading books, and I've got one from 1910, and it's full of all the simple nursery rhymes um, with the idea that the children would learn them because they're very infectious or contagious, whatever you want to call them. They're very easy to learn, and that through the learning, you would, it would help you to learn how to read. Um, I was brought up on the beacon readers, some of which are kind of deadly dull, but others have got lovely little rhymes and stories in and so on. But um, a lot of the phonic stuff is, is you know, like, exactly as you're saying, Marina, it's, it's, it ain't fun. You know, it's, it's pretty deadly. The uh, sound, especially in nursery rhymes, don't you think sometimes the sound is the sense? I mean, these mm. four-year-old kids, they don't know what Tuffet means. I mean, the nursery rhyme about Miss Muffet who said yes. on a Tuffet. They don't know what curds and whey is. Yeah. But they are fascinated. Oh. Yeah, but they are fascinated. I only but found out because my mother used to anyway. like to eat it. <laughs> she did actually eat it. She was Cur eating of curds and whey. Curds and yeah. whey, yes. It was her Russian-Polish origins. And she yeah, would right. pour this stuff out and we curds would leave the room. Because as far as we were concerned, <laughs> my mother was eating sour milk. And she'd say, oh, it's beautiful. Look, this is the curds and whey and so on. We'd, no, let's get out. It's go, mum's eating curds and whey now. <laughs> Time to go. Time to leave the tuffet. Yeah, that's right. I think we should really, um, we, we have got a little bit of time for some questions and then we were going to move on to a short poetry reading at mm -hmm. the end as that's what we've, we've been talking about. But um, we have a, a microphone up there and um, if you would like to ask um, Marina or Michael a question, um, if you put your hand up and we'll bring the microphone down. There's a, there's a question at the front here. I'd like uh, to ask a question to Marina uh, about uh, the universality or transferability of uh, children's poetry or, or stories from one country to another because one aspect of children's poetry, but I, I'm not such an expert on poetry, but the stories I know a little bit more, is that uh, stories travel far, uh, and if you take the crocodile, for instance, I can think of five crocodile stories, you know, in different countries, what, you know, one from Somalia that, that's a, an absolute classic, and there'll be others. To what extent uh, in Russia uh, have uh, stories from outside Russia uh, penetrated at all to the parents of the Urals or, or, or Moscow or St. Petersburg. And, and then a more specific question on the same tag, uh, something like Alice in Wonderland that has uh, got its 150th anniversary here and some British people feel proud of it or one of the classic stories that, are, that is British. Is that considered by Russia at all? Is it considered subver subversive or just a they don't know anything about it. Alice who, uh, from an island uh, off the mainland of Europe. Uh, how, how does Russia see 
uh, stories from outside Russia? Uh, well, I'll begin from, I'll begin with Alice. Yeah, well, Alice in Wonderland is a Russian children's classic. <laughs> yeah, well, so to say, of course, quote unquote. Uh, only recently I participated in a TV program uh, discussing with, you know, with s several serious men, translators, philologists, philologists, uh, and we were discussing Alice in Wonderland, uh, celebrating the anniversary and talking about what it meant for Russia and the Russian readers, of course. Russia is famous for absorbing uh, literature from the outside. Russian literature uh, sort of was fed and nursed by outside springs. And the famous Russian poetry of the 19th century owes a lot to Byron and Shelley and Keats and other people like this. And also, we all owe a lot to Grandfather Cornier and Samuel Marshak, who translated the first and the most famous nursery rhymes into Russian. So, Shaltai Baltai, Humpty Dumpty. And uh, the little girl who lost her shoe, was her name Mary, by the way? Russian and English got mixed up in my head. Uh, Lost, yeah, Jenny, Jenny, I think Jenny Tuflu Petirel. Jenny lost her And Bear Bear Black Sheep. Okay, Bear Bear Black Sheep. And uh, for want of a nail, uh, a shoe was lost for want of a yeah. shoe. A horse was lost. Yeah, etc., etc. It's all part now, thanks to Chukovsky and Marshak, part of Russian classical children's heritage. So, at least not to worry about that. And in no small part, also thanks to Marina, who's done an awful lot of work translating I did English language I did some classes. nursery rhymes. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and I, I felt honored when I was doing the job because I was following Tchaikovsky and Marshak. And I also, I tried to do the best job that I could because I wanted my nursery rhymes to stay in the language too at least a few of them. If you want a flavor of Tchaikovsky, uh, his writing, uh, not just his poetry, there's a wonderful book called From Two to Five in English, that's what it's called, um, and it's, uh, he's, he's basically summarizing his attitudes to fantasy, and indeed he, he describes very amusingly his struggles with the stern-faced party commissars who are telling him that he's just got to be talking about tractors and tractor wheels. Um, but it's, it's a very strong defense of fantasy, and he was, to a certain extent, protected by Gorky, um, who had a, a, some origins in, and def, could defend the folk tale. So out of the back of that, Tchaikovsky was, a certain, to a certain extent, protected, while Tchaikovsky then protected all kinds of subversive writers under the wing of claiming they were children's writers, people like Daniel um, Harms, <laughs> and people like that, who in the end died uh, in the Gulag. But, um, it's, it's remarkable. And there's also a Yale University Press edition of his letters. And that's remarkable as well because you can trace in through his letters the way he was defending people like Ahmatova. Um, and it's ex quite extraordinary. Um, and that, that, so that's uh, his letters and the other one from two to five, which um, is in very cheap editions. You can get that for, yeah. 
Tchaikovsky's birthday, the 1st of April, April Fool's Day, mm -hmm. is still celebrated by Moscow children's writers, and not only children's writers, but mostly children's writers. Every year, without an invitation, they flock down to Peridelkina, to where he used to live and work. It's in the Moscow vicinity, in the suburbs. And they um, sit down and eat and drink and recite poetry and talk about the old grandfather Cornet. It's like a tradition to bring in here. Yeah, Let's have another, nice tradition now. Another, another question. Is it Amanda? I just always thought I was too stupid to figure it out for myself, so a room full of experts, I'll ask you. When does a child learn, think, believe that uh, books can have authors? Because talking about nursery rhymes and fairy tales and so on never occurred to me the books had authors until I was staying in the Swan at Swanage with my dad, aged four. And he said, that's Enid Blyton over the room. You'd better take your Noddy books to her. And I don't know which was worse. I loathed Noddy. And I immediately loathed Enid Blyton. And the only <laughs> compensation, I suppose, was that the feeling was absolutely mutual. And she clearly hated me coming, refused to sign my book and carried on spreading very parsimoniously butter on her triangle of toast. But um, what, where does this idea of an author come from? To, to me as a child, books just came out of the ether, because stories did. But Probably slides about, doesn't it? I mean, obviously these days, quite a few authors, we run into schools, we rush into schools, but I sometimes see it's a bit embarrassing, really. Parents sometimes, with this sort of three-year-old, go, that's the man who did bear hunt. And you can see this little three-year-old going, how, what? I have a book. What's he to do? There's no relate. Or if I'm writing my name in the book, and his children look thinking, well, why is that man scribbling in my book? You know? <laughs> and his parents saying, yes, thank you very much. And they're going, why is he doing it? It was a nice book, you know. Um, so... Uh, I would think, you know, around, it's sort of around about sort of fives and sixes is when there's a sort of connection because they've had a go at authoring themselves. So the notion that I might do the same thing. I mean, the children quite often ask me, how, how do you write the book? And what they mean is how do you go from writing to that? But I think that's less mysterious now because of computers. So they can see instantly that you can go chuk, 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 chuk and something comes out that looks like the page. 10, 10, 20 years ago, I'd say that was almost utterly mysterious, and I'd go off on one great long one about, well, you write, and then you type it, and then you send it off, and you go, and there's a piece of publishing, like that, and you can say, like that. Has he finished yet? So I, um, I keep that very short these days, but um, I would think sort of five and six, it's beginning to come together, and of course, they do see authors like David Walliams on the telly, you see. So David Walliams is now massively popular, um, and they see him on Britain's Got Talent or X Factor or whichever one he's on. Um, so there's some connections that you can make with people on the telly these days as well. So I, I would say roughly. It's sort of assumption. You know, there's a collective imagination and that then becomes individualised, which is... I just thought literature came out of, you know, sort of common knowledge. And well, broadly, like you're right. Like you're right and still are. Time, yes. Right? Yeah. We, we are part of common knowledge, yes. Yeah. But that, I suppose, is a sort of uh, combination of romanticism and Marxism to say that, isn't it? 
yes, that there's a sort of common, and yes, well, I wasn't going to go there, but anyway, but certainly a sense that somehow or other we're just sharing this kind of intertextual stuff and we're just sort of sharing it and then every now and then one of us goes and it comes, yeah, out. So yes, no, you were right then when you were four and that's still the case, yeah. I think you can explain, you can start explaining the notion of authorship to them at five or six, but it takes some time to sink in. Because I remember cases when seven years old, uh, seven year olds <laughs> and nine year olds would send, uh, would send my or some of my colleagues' poems to a children's magazine. And after that, we would, we would get funny calls from those magazines. Uh, as their own, because as soon as a poem was published, some little first grader, second grader would copy it dutifully and send it off to the Murzilka or some other children's magazine, uh, prefacing it with the words, Dear Editor, or whatever, Dragaya Redakcija, so it would be Dear Editor, right? Yeah, I have written a poem. And it's true, he has written a poem. He wrote it with a pen on paper. It was, it was not easy, you know. <laughs> yeah, so we had acquaintances at those children's magazines who would call us and say, okay, uh, your tongue twister was written by five uh, primary schoolers this month. <laughs> and, and that other one wasn't popular. It was only written by three, you know. <laughs> That's really sweet. That's really, the uh, ultimate tribute, isn't it, when somebody takes yeah, it on? I mean, and it, it was very, very pleasant, of course. But I understand, it wasn't stealing. No. It's a tribute, isn't it? It's a genuine... It, and it genuine wasn't stealing. Tribute. They really wrote it. They, there, wasn't any there weren't any computers back then. You, they had to take a pen and really work at it. Well, when I was seven, I, I read a book called Solomon the Cat which was a story about how Solomon the cat gets uh, kicked out of the house and goes looking for another place to live. And he goes searching around. And I read it, and then I saw a competition in the newspaper. And uh, I wrote a story called Solomon the Cat. <laughs> and it was about a cat that gets thrown out <laughs> and goes from house to house looking for someone. And I, and I won the competition. <laughs> and um, it was printed in the paper. And then it was printed in the Christmas annual as well of the paper. And then sometime later, we got a letter from the paper uh, saying that they had um, heard from someone who said they had uh, come across a picture book called Solomon the Cat um, about a cat that gets thrown out and goes from <laughs> house to house. And, um, and we got this letter from the paper saying this. And, and my dad picked it up and he said, see this, Connie? I said to my mum, see this. Someone's stolen Michael's story <laughs> and made a book out of it. The things people do, you know. If I had the time, I'd try. Anyway, yeah. And even worse, Marina, even, even, even worse, it was the Daily Worker. <laughs> it's the communist newspaper. So, you know, it's even worse, you know. I'd, but never mind, it was, it was uh, all part of fraternal sharing, wasn't it? That's right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Fraternal sharing. I think we should have some poetry before we, we finish this evening. And um, um, I know both Michael and Marina have agreed to read for a, for a few minutes to finish off the evening. Which way should we do it? Do we, who, Marina, do you want to, to start and then move, move to Michael? Would that be the, 
best way. And then yes. backwards and forwards. We can't just no, no. in turns until they, everybody's Actually, left. Well, so we'll carry on for about four or five hours <laughs> until the last one leaves. Yeah, why not? I'm, uh, I'm rather handicapped in this matter because I can only read what Sasha has translated I mean, for children. Yeah, okay. Will you do them in Russian as well as English? Uh, shall I? Yes. Oh, shall Yeah, okay. Okay. Первоклассник. Um, somehow I can't read poetry, even if it's kids' poetry, sitting down. I feel wrong, you know. Because, yeah, you know, kids can't see me, actually, when I'm sitting in a classroom. They just, they just can't see me, just the top of the head, mostly. Первоклассник, первоклассник, нарядился как на праздник, даже в лужу не зашел, погляделся и прошел. Уши вымыты до глянца, алый гриб на крышке ранца, да и сам он, как грибок, из-под кепки смотрит в бок. Все ли видят, все ли знают, все ли от зависти вздыхают. First day at school, he's dressed in his brand new shoes. A puddle blinks and winks with its eye, but he only glances in and walks quickly by. He is washed and combed, he gleams and glows. He has a new rucksack and all new clothes, and from under his hood he looks slyly round, hops like a bird in the busy playground. Will they see me? Will they see? and sigh and die of jealousy. <laughs> One of the upsides of having communist parents was that uh, I did have a lot of Russian literature as a child, always in English. And one of the funniest bits that we used to share is in the novel that takes the line from the uh, Lamontov poem, The White Sail Gleams, or A Lonely White Sail, as it's translated, which I absolutely adored as a book by uh, Valentin uh, Katayev. And I absolutely adored this book as a child, but one of them was because of the very funny bit when the boy has to do his poem, and he says to the teacher, I don't know whether you remember this bit, he says, do you want it with expression or without? <laughs> and the teacher is very tired. He's, it's very sort of end-of-term test. He says, with expression, and so the little boy stands up he sticks his chin out and he begins to recite. And I said, no, no, without, it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> and so in our house, that became like a little catchphrase. You know, my dad would say, you know, what have you got to, what have you had to learn something today? And I'd say, well, something, I've got to do a poem or something. And I said, yeah, you can do it with expression or without, you know. <laughs> anyway, so, um, and the other, sorry, if I just might say, I once went to a, a, a wonderful poetry uh, reading um, to do with Mandelstam. And it was absolutely stunning. And what happened was there was uh, a woman who read the Mantelstam in Russian, and then somebody read it in English, and there was a discussion. And <laughs> it was quite extraordinary. It was the first time I think I ever saw Russian poetry recited in public. And the woman who recited the Mantelstam, she stood up exactly as you did, and she threw out her chest like that, and then she read Mandelstam like that, and I'd always read Mandelstam rather quietly, you know, about the silver birches, you know, the, the acme tradition, isn't it? Isn't that what it's called? The acme tradition is very quiet and introverted, and this woman, boom, 
like this, as you would only know. And then... Did I look like that? No. <laughs> I said, as you know, not as you did. So anyway, so and this woman read it like this and so on. And I remember my jaw just dropping like that, that Mandelstam could be read like this. And then, of course, the English person said, and then the silver birches went uh, down, the rain fell. Anyway, so it was a contrast between the two. Very interesting. Anyway, so um, I will read you a poem, What Shall I Do?, um, Oh, yes. So uh, I, quite often I, I sort of write about my parents uh, from the point of view uh, of the child that I was. So you have to imagine that I'm a, a teenager by now. And uh, how many of you here... Um, yes, that's right. Um, how many of you here uh, were brought up by parents, both of whom worked? Let's just get a sense of that. And how many, how many of you are in a relationship where both of you work? Yeah, so you'll get a sense of this then. Okay, so... This is, my parents are both teachers. Dad says, Phew, I'm tired. And Mum says, you're tired. I'm tired. So they've come in from work, yeah? Mum says, you're tired. I'm tired. And Dad says, I've never, ever been as tired as this. And Mum says, you don't know what tired is. I'll tell you what tired is. It's me. That's what tired is. And Dad says, I'm tired all over. It's my legs. It's my head. And Mum says, my tired isn't just inside. Everywhere's tired. And Dad says, I haven't even begun to tell you how tired I am. And Mum says, I know how tired you are. You've told me. And you know something? You telling me you're tired makes me tired. And Dad says, and that's it. No one understands how tired I am. No one listens. In the end, I get tired saying I'm tired. And Mum says, what you don't know is that before I was this tired... I didn't know a person could be this tired. If I had known then how tired I was going to be, I wouldn't have let myself get this tired. And I say, anyone around here tired? Anyway, so there we are. That's um, my parents, um, my dear parents who are both teachers. At the beginning of the part two of Crocodile, Tchaikovsky's Crocodile, Crocodile comes back to the Nile where his... His wife and the provider for his kids has been with the kids, and she, she says something along those lines. Yes. You've been off, and I'm tired. Well, Sasha asked me earlier whether there were any voices in my head that weren't English. Was there other languages, as it were, sitting behind the way in which I write? And I say that to a certain extent, there was something that Americans call Yinglish. That's the marriage between Yiddish and English. And so when I hear that, I can hear my dad saying, you know, You're tired which is, I mean, I know people say that, but I can hear a sort of Yinglish pronunciation that, you know, you can see in sort of American comedy and that sort of thing. So, yeah. I was thinking of a way to do it in Russian. <laughs> Please do. Please do. I need one of these books. Yeah, one well, of these days. Remind me to get one. Okay. Next one? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Tiotushka hmm. Luna? Uh, Sorry. Я возвращался из гостей, в потемках шел пешком. За мною тетушка Луна по небу шла бочком. Я сел в трамвай, трамвай бежал по улицам кружа. За нами тетушка Луна скакала дребезжа. Тогда спустился я в метро, где ходят поезда. Отстала старая Луна. Ей не попасть туда. Усталый прибыл я домой, Вошел и в кресло плюх. В окошке полная луна Переводила дух. 
Auntie Moon. I was coming home from my friend's house in the dusk, in the twilight, in the night, and old Auntie Moon was following me home, sliding through the clouds on her side. I climbed in the tram at the tram stop, and the tram went running through the streets. Above us, Auntie Moon ran on the rooftops, rattling and jangling and stopping with a screech. I went down into the metro, where all the trains run underneath the ground, but old Auntie Moon couldn't follow me, follow me there, and she got left behind. I stood panting in the doorway and threw myself flump in a chair. In the window, Auntie Moon is round and full and catching her breath and tidying her hair. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, I, I can't say I set myself the task, but I found myself drawn to the idea of writing for the very, very, very youngest children um, a couple of years ago, or maybe it was more than that. And it sort of poses all kinds of challenges that, that I wanted to make the language very physical. Um, I wanted to try and capture how very, very young children talk to their dolls and their teddy bears and so on. Um, and so I found myself sort of around in the kind of nursery rhyme territory. Well, it's going to come out very soon, and it's called A Great Big Cuddle, and it, this is a sample from it, and it's illustrated by Chris Riddell, who you may know is the new children's laureate. Um, and he has done the most incredible and wonderful pictures for it, and it's been beautifully designed. Um, so this one is called Finger Story. Finger in bed, finger wake up, finger stretch, finger shake up. Finger cut, fingers bread. Fingers butter, fingers spread. Fingers go out, fingers walk. Fingers wave, fingers talk. Fingers climb, fingers mountain. Fingers slide, fingers fountain. Fingers run, fingers jump. Fingers fall, fingers bump. Fingers home, fingers bread. Fingers tired, fingers bed. <laughs> so it's, it's, I've tried to find a way to kind of write a sort of new nursery rhyme, really. So it was like... It kind of flowed, and then every now and then I would get completely stuck. So it was quite a, quite a challenge to do it. But anyway, there we are. You can see some of the pictures in it. So I'm very, very lucky to have had Chris do these. There was one there I wanted to do. Uh, There's one, the I am angry one. Sorry, just, just one moment while I show you. There, there. So the designers, <laughs> the designers, you can see, have had a fantastic time with it and trying to make each page in this thing about, we talk about interpretation, the, the people, the designers at places like Walker Books, they think of the whole page and the whole spread and how it engages the eye and the mind of the child. And they don't just think, oh, right, you just do a little bit of type down the page. And, of course, that's absolute anathema to your phonics friends. Mm -hmm. um, not yours, I'm saying that ironically, that, that, that it's to engage the whole, it's trying to, trying to make words and poetry visceral as well as these other things, yeah. We've run out of time, so I just wanted just to, no, just to wind up, if we have one more poem from Marina quickly, and then we'll, we'll finish. And, no, um, no fair. Well, one small poem, because okay. you've, you've travelled further than Marina tonight, than <laughs> Michael tried tonight, at least. Okay. Lullaby then, maybe? Maybe. Or the Lisnik. Lisnik. Okay. Uh, it's for, like, not very young kids. Uh, в гостях у Лесника. 
Здесь опускаются птицы в наш огород. Здесь поднимается небо прямо с земли. Если бы только мы жили здесь круглый год, Медленнее бы говорили, быстрее росли. Здесь деловитый ежик пыхтит в углу, Старый колодец цепочкой стук да бряк. Глянешь в окошко, прижмется луна к стеклу, Двери откроешь, и солнце стоит в дверях. Here the birds fly down, right into the garden. Here the sky lifts, straight up from the ground. If only we lived here the whole year round. We'd speak much slower, we'd grow far taller. Here the hedgehog grunts and noses in the corner. The old well has a chain that clinks and clanks. Look out of the window, the moon is pressing on the pane. Open the door. The sun is standing on the mat outside. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Really, just wanted to say that MPT will be on sale, and it's uh, five pounds tonight. It's usually seven pounds. So if you want to get a copy, it's really beautiful, full of beautiful poems by wonderful poets like Marina, and uh, <laughs> oh, it will be be outside. Um, and if you for sale. if you hold it this way, you can see that in fact it's also called TQM. Well, if you hold it this way, you can see it's called Muddy Pigs in Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> You can work that one out later. I'd like to say a really big thank you to, to Marina and to Michael for spending the evening with us and making it so brilliant and entertaining. Thank you so much for coming. Let's have a... And Sasha. And Sasha.